Almost anyone who believes in the afterlife, if you were to go on the street and ask someone, if they say, I do believe in the afterlife, almost anyone who believes in an afterlife thinks they will go to heaven. This assertion leads to some absurd ends, however. My mind goes to the myriad of uh, public figures, for example, who claim to be Christian, some of whom I trust really are. But you think about certain politicians, entertainers, and even some extremely liberal clergy and ministers, and you peer into their lives and find that their words, their attitudes, and their actions are diametrically opposed to God's word and God's will for how his people ought to live. And we see this in regular, ordinary people, too, of course. Will these people really go to heaven? Will they really dwell with God? And what about you and me? I think for any of us who have a well-working conscience, we've wondered that question, too. Psalm 15 deals with the question of who may live with God. It's a wisdom psalm that most scholars believe was an entrance psalm so that as God's people were going forward to worship, as David was going to worship the Lord in the tabernacle, and later when God's people went into the temple, they were reminded who is it that is worthy to worship the Lord and live with him on his holy hill on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So this psalm is instruction for us of what is required to go before God's presence and live with him. So the question is, do you wish to live with God? And if you say yes, then this is what he requires. David is going to show us in this psalm that God's demands are not cultic, but ethical. Not cultic, but ethical. And whether or not the ten requirements evoked in this psalm are to make us think of the Ten Commandments or not, it does highlight that God's basic requirements for dwelling with him on his holy mountain, they're moral. They're moral requirements. In the end, God is not simply looking for people to show up on Sunday and dress the part, right? Like actors on a stage. He's not looking for us to just wear the uniform, but be something completely different inside. He's not looking for people who can say the right spell or make the right incantation to manipulate God into doing what they want. God is not mocked. He cannot be manipulated. God is looking for people with the right heart. The right heart. Now, in a world, uh, our contemporary world, that is driven mad by wishful thinking and living your own truth, believing that you will make the cut is not enough. After we consider God's requirements, we'll see that there is only one man who makes the grade. Only one man has the right to dwell with the Father. But through that one man, as the Apostle Paul writes, God's righteous requirement is fulfilled in us.
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you wish to live with God? I hope every one of you share that wish with me. If yes, then the only way is through the life of faith in Christ. And that's where we're going to go this morning from Psalm 15 to its fulfillment in Jesus. And we are going to root our hope for living with God there in Christ, in his finished work for us. So that's where we're going this morning. Psalm 15 has a three-part structure, and we'll unpack each section in turn. This morning, we're going to deal with the question, the answer, and the promise. That's how we're going to look at it this morning, the question, the answer, and the promise. So first, the question, and we see this in verse 1, who can live with God? Who can live with God? When David brought the ark to Jerusalem, he pitched a tent for it, if you recall, a temporary dwelling for the ark of the covenant. Remember that the ark of the covenant represented God's presence among his people. The sign that God was with the Israelites was physically demonstrated by the ark being in their midst. And in the tent, David made sacrifices to the Lord and communed with him. The ark represented God's presence with his people residing in Jerusalem. The ark signified that Mount Zion was God's holy hill. It was the place of God's holy dwelling. And David learned holiness by these encounters as he worshiped the Lord. And as he did so, he had ample room to meditate on what God requires to enter his presence in worship. And we see that reflected here in this psalm. He asked the question in verse 1. Look at the text with me. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Here we see that David clearly understood that access to God is not a given. Access to God is not a given. You don't just saunter into God's presence with your cappuccino and muffin ready to get your God fix. Right? As some saunter in today. Access to God is not a given. It's not a a casual thing. David knew Israel's history of irreverent worship very well. Can you think of some of those examples? David knew full well as he's thinking about this, the unleashing of God's righteous judgment on Israel when they worshipped him irreverently. The slaughter after the golden calf. The death of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered unholy fire. The multitude that perished in Korah's rebellion. And the rejection of Saul after his disobedient, half-hearted sacrifice in 1 Samuel 15. These were all reminders to David that God doesn't offer free access to himself. The incompatibility of our presence before God 
is further emphasized by the verb David uses in verse 1, where he says, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Sojourn applies to resident aliens, people that don't naturally belong there. In our natural state, we are strangers to God. We do not belong in his presence. We don't naturally belong there. So to illustrate this, let's say you're sitting down to dinner with your spouse and your kids, and all of a sudden, uninvited, your neighbor walks in, grabs a plate, starts dishing up, and sits down and eats with you. That is not normal, right? You'd be a little taken aback. Why? Because he doesn't naturally belong there. And that's how it is when we come before the Lord. We do not naturally belong there. We have no natural right to come before his presence. Your neighbor doesn't get free access to your house. In the same way, we don't get free access to God's house. Even as God's chosen people, David knew that Israel too doesn't get free access. Anyone allowed entrance to God's house comes as a resident alien. They come as a stranger who doesn't have the natural right to be there. So David then asks, Who does have a right to live in your tent, Lord? Now David, of course, is writing metaphorically. You know, he did not live in the tabernacle per se. His, his house was not within the tent. But Jerusalem symbolized God's holy city. So who is it that has a right to live in that holy city? He's asking about as he's looking at the multitude of people coming and going in Jerusalem, knowing that many of those people that are natural citizens of Jerusalem are actually very wicked people and are not God-fearers and who are paying lip service to Yahweh, who of these people have a true right to dwell in the city? Who are the people that have the true right to worship who are the true citizens of God's holy city? And the rest of this psalm will answer his question. But before we move on, I want to impress upon you the weight of our inquiry. The weight of our inquiry this morning by citing two warnings from the old Cambridge preacher, Charles Simeon. Simeon, uh, writing on this psalm, gives two warnings that really stuck to me, and I want to share them with you. Simeon's first warning is that Psalm 15 teaches that not all will be saved. Not all will, and that's the connection, not all have free access. Not all will be saved. Simeon writes, certainly it implies that all will not be saved. And this is a truth which our blessed Lord has confirmed beyond a doubt. Some dream of annihilation, and some of heaven. But what a fearful disappointment will multitudes experience. Yes, fearfulness will surprise them. And instead of dwelling in the bosom of their God, they will dwell with devouring fire, even with everlasting burnings. As we study the psalm this morning, 
Consider God's kindness in showing us the pathway to him before it is too late. Consider God's kindness in showing so that deluded minds can be set right. Consider God's kindness in the psalm. Not all will be saved. Many will assume that they are fine. Many will laugh at the need for a mediator before the Lord. I think of the taxi driver I spoke to last, uh, last fall who scoffed when I said, you need a mediator. And all who rest on such folly will awaken to an eternity cast from God's presence on the day of judgment. So consider God's kindness in that we are here today being shown the way to God through his word. Psalm 15 is a gracious warning to us. It's a great warnings can be gracious. They don't seem pleasant, but when they lead to pleasant ends, they are gracious. Secondly, Simeon gives another warning about our, the perception of our moral goodness being grossly inflated. Again, you know, you ask someone on the street, are you a good person? Everybody says yes. I mean, there, there, of course, there's going to be an exception. Someone will. But most people will say yes. And they'll draw the line of, their, of goodness kind of to where they are. <laughs> then people less good than their perception are bad, right? And it's always, you know, they always just get in. And Simeon writes, he says, It is of Jehovah himself that David makes the inquiry, for it is Jehovah alone that can answer it aright. In other words, only God can set the standard for who gets in. Man is partial in his own favor. And even when constrained to acknowledge that there must be a difference between the righteous and the wicked, he takes care so to draw the line as to include himself among the number that shall be saved. But God has no respect of persons. His word is fixed, and according to that word shall be the doom of every child of man. In other words, the doom, the pronouncement will be based not on our estimation of our goodness, but on God's law, his righteous standard. David shows us in these verses to come that God determines who is righteous and who is wicked. We are always partial in our own favor, but wishful thinking and a self-inflated ego will not get you to heaven. Access to God is not a given, and so let's see what is required in order to go and dwell and live with God. This leads us to our second point, to the answer. The blameless shall live with God. We see this in verses 2 through 5a. The blameless shall live with God. It's no coincidence that verse, or that, sorry, that Psalm 15 follows after Psalm 14. Psalm 14, as you recall, leaves us in a position where we're all damned. Right? And again, without Christ, we're all damned. And Paul draws on Psalm 14 in Romans 3 to show us that there's no unrighteous, neither Jew nor Greek. We are all condemned. 
under the law. It's not a coincidence, therefore, that Psalm 15 comes right after that. We need that humiliation in order to understand that there's only one man who has a right to go before the Lord. In Psalm 14 reminds us there is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 15 therefore teaches us that access to God, now get this, access to God is a work of grace. Because none of us deserve to be there. That any of us can be there, it is a gift of grace. This grace is experienced as David discloses what is required technically by God's standard to live with him. And in order to experience grace, we must first understand how we fail to measure up, right? Grace is a chief gift if in our own estimation we're already pretty good. We must understand how we fall impossibly short if we are ever going to be able to grasp grace. We are worse than even the worst cynic can imagine. Or maybe say the best cynic. We are worse off by our fleshly nature than what the best cynic who sees wrong in every deed we do could see. God knows it even better. And we got to understand this so that we can understand grace. What it, what it means to have the privilege to gather and worship. To have the Spirit dwell in us. To be part of God's family as those who were once enemies and strangers. So let's learn grace. Let's experience grace by now learning how we fail to measure up in these verses. In verse 2, we're given a summary statement of the whole. When David says, the answer, who shall live with God? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, blamelessness is a pretty high standard, isn't it? That basically shoots all of us down. So why could David enter the tent and worship if that's God's requirement? Moreover, as you think about the Old Testament, why could men like Noah and Job, as well as David, be described in the Bible as blameless? When we clearly know, technically, they had a lot of faults too. Right? Job himself began to doubt God's goodness. Right? But it says here that the one who lives with God is the one who speaks truth in his heart, who is blameless. David had an affair. Not only did David have an affair, but he had the woman's husband killed. So what gives David this right? And how can he be called blameless or a man after God's own heart? Noah, too, had a pretty rough family. He did trust the Lord. He was a, a pretty good guy, we're told from Scripture. But he wasn't perfect. He wasn't blameless. So how do we make sense of this tension? 
we need to understand that Psalm 15 is written within the context of God's covenant. Psalm 15 is written within the framework of God's covenant. So first of all, it is God's gracious condescension that allows his people to dwell with him at all. David can go before the Lord because God graciously allowed him to come into his presence, not because David deserved it, but because God graciously gave him entrance. Second, there is a tension between the requirement and the experience. David is not struck down in worship, even though he can't perfectly fulfill God's righteous requirement. Okay? So the requirement states that David should be struck down if he goes before the Lord. And yet his experience is that he's allowed to come. And the question is why? And we know from Scripture, I'm thinking of Hebrews 11, for example, he does because he comes by faith. We are told that even these Old Testament saints, they came by faith. But there's something more. David's experience of access to God is something that is actually going to be purchased for him in the future by the atoning work of Christ. It's as if David swiped the credit card so that he could get access to the throne of grace. And yet the one paying the bill is going to be Jesus through his own blood. And we're going to look at this a little bit later on in the message. So that even the Old Testament saints' access to God is something that will be purchased in the future by Christ and applied backwards to the old saints who walked by faith before the coming of Christ. Let's then move on then. So blamelessness is the basic requisite here. But what kind of blamelessness are we talking about? And in the rest of the verses here, from verse 3 down to 5a, before we get to the closing statement at the end, we could categorize these, uh, these requirements basically between head, heart, and hands. Head, heart, and hands. Scholars um, have different theories on how these Uh, requirements are structured together, but it's interesting to me, you can take it or leave it, that there is a a bit of a flow of head, heart, and hands. And if if for any other reason, it's a helpful way to think about the requirements. We see in verse 3 that he must be blameless in his words. The the words coming out of his mouth, he must be blameless. Look at verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, someone that his words are pure, that he's not going around, going out of his way to cut down uh, and say false things about others. He's someone that's not striving to condemn his neighbor, does no evil to his neighbor nor to betray his friends, nor take up a reproach against his friend. Furthermore, as we look at verse 4a, it's someone who is blameless in his feelings, in his affections, in how he feels. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, 
but who honors those who fear the Lord. There's someone that they, when they see evil, they despise it in their hearts. There are actually things we should hate and we should despise that are holy and righteous feelings. When we see the unborn being murdered and when we see marriage being trodden in the streets, when we see the very people and institutions that are claiming to speak for human rights silence movies like The Sound of Freedom that have come out recently to highlight human trafficking, we should despise that evil. And the one who has free access to God's throne is the one who shares the same feelings as God himself. And likewise, on the positive, the one who honors those who fear the Lord, that our heart should be filled with grace and reverence and delight and care and love for those who fear God from the greatest to the least. So the one who has the right to live with God is blameless in his words and in his feelings. Now, thirdly, also the one who is blameless in his actions. We see this in verses 4b to 5a. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So someone that is blameless in that the way that they speak and the way that they feel is congruent with the way they act. The big idea here is one that does not exploit your brother. Don't exploit your brother. Just on a technical uh, point here regarding money at interest, commentators uh, have pointed out that business loans are probably not in view here in terms of uh, basic interest for a loan. Rather, what's in view here is exploitive interest. So, for example, one commentator says the sense of neshek is probably usury, excessive interest. In the ancient Near East, interest up to 50% was charged at times. Such interest was contrary to the intended function of the loan in view in the Old Testament to aid those in financial distress. That business loans are in view is doubtful. So at any rate, God is not condemning business loans or your home loan that has reasonable interest, but the exploitation of others who are already in distress. As we think about these three ways that the one who has a right to dwell with God is blameless, we quickly find that we are in trouble, don't we? But I do want to see want you to see one other thing here before we get to the cure. Worship and the rest of the week are intimately connected in the Bible. Remember we said at the beginning that God is not primarily interested in cultic requirements but ethical requirements. That the one who has the right to worship and live with God is the one who treats his neighbor justly. 
who lives righteously in the world. The way we treat others is directly related to how we either honor or shame the Lord when we worship. This is a far cry from thinking that when we enter worship, it's just between me and God, right? It's a far cry from that. When we think it's just about me and God and nothing else matters, right? That was the Corinthian problem, remember? When they were taking the Lord's Supper unworthily because they're going before the Lord, feigning faith and righteousness while despising others in the church. And they were drinking judgment on themselves as a result. So who is worthy to worship? Who is worthy to to live with God? It's those who are blameless in their words and their feelings and their actions, the whole blameless in their whole person. Now, as I say this, I hope you're feeling it because I feel it. There's an uneasy tension with this. There's a very uneasy tension with this. And in a moment, we're going to resolve it. But like I said, we need to experience how we don't measure up in order that we might experience what grace really is. And that leads us to the third and final section of this psalm. Number three, the promise. The promise. And in verse five, David concludes, He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. So let's deal with the tension that we've been feeling throughout this message. We're going to deal with this tension by closing with a few biblical or new excuse me a few New Testament reflections on how we find grace in Jesus Christ and what that means as we worship and live before God and what our hope is for eternity. So we'll close with a few biblical reflections. Number 1, only one can stand and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one can stand, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one, the Bible tells us, who lived without sin. And he's also the only one, the Bible tells us, through whom we can draw near to God. A great text to illustrate this point is Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. And then going down, jumping down to verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews shows us that Jesus was the only one who was without sin. And therefore, as our great high priest, it is through him that we have not only access to the throne of grace, but confidence to enter through the throne of grace. Because when we come before the Lord, we're not coming confident in ourselves, but we have a rock-solid confidence in Christ. 
who fulfilled the law and who paid the penalty for us failing to do the law on the cross. It's because of Jesus' blameless life that we, through faith, can have access to the throne of grace. And if you get nothing else from the sermon today, I hope you get that. The very reason and the only reason we can worship here without lightning coming down is because of grace. And most certainly when we appear before the judgment judgment seat on the day of judgment, the reason God will let us live with him is because of grace, our faith in Jesus. Another uh, reflection from the New Testament to resolve this tension. The connection between faith, worship, and how we treat our brother is sustained in the New Testament. Just in case you're thinking this is merely an Old Testament thing. In Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19 all the way to 25, we are told that the way to God is through his the flesh of Jesus. He's the curtain that was torn. Let me read it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water And here's where it gets, it's not just vertical, it's also horizontal. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, showing up on Sunday to worship, to encourage each other, is pleasing to God. It's one of those things he requires of those who come before his presence. And he's delighted when we show up to encourage each other in the gospel and to build each other up. And that's part of the gift that's been given to us, as the writer of Hebrews shows us, by Jesus' body being torn. So that not only can we go before God individually, but that we do that with the whole family of God together. A third reflection, a third reflection from the New Testament. It's by faith in Christ that we become active doers of the word, albeit imperfectly. The New Testament actually tells us that we become blameless not because we do anything perfectly and we never do anything perfectly, but because representationally, Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. So, for example, James warns the New Testament church Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, this is be the law of faith, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, explains more explicitly why this is. And in Romans 8, which we read in our scripture reading this morning, he reminds us that there, in light of Jesus' sacrifice, which he talks about in chapter 3, now here in verse 8, he says, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason that Paul tells us in Romans 8, 3, is because God did something our flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Not because of anything we did but because Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. And the reason we know this is because of the life of the Spirit that we are given as a gift. So Paul will go on after he says, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And just in case there's anyone still with wishful thinking they can do it on his own, Paul goes on in verse 8 to say, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when God looks at us, He does not assess our righteousness based on our own deeds. He assesses our righteousness based on Christ's deeds. And we have assurance of this by the Spirit that dwells within us. So that when we live by the Spirit, the life of faith, even our imperfect deeds done for the Lord are covered and are considered blameless. Isn't that amazing? In light of what we've just seen this morning, do you understand grace a little better? I hope that you do. It's amazing how God does not lower the requirement at all. He maintains perfect holiness. And yet even the most grievous sinner who places their faith in Christ can be elevated to that standard, not because of his own deeds, but because of the blood of Jesus. That is grace. That is grace. And then lastly, One final reflection from the New Testament. The Old Testament saints' blameless status was also purchased by Christ. I hinted at this at the beginning of the message. The Old Testament saints' blameless status was also purchased by Christ. Gideon, when he preached uh, last week from Psalm 14, took us to Romans 3, which is such a critical text for understanding grace understanding of the gospel. And there's a key verse in that section that helps us understand that even David's righteous status was purchased in the future by Jesus. 
We read in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's, that's a, an atonement or a sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See, in God's divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins of David and of all the other saints who had faith in God, who yet did not, were not able to see Jesus, but they knew that God was coming. They placed their faith in God and they knew that this was going to work out, that God's salvation would come. All those people who died in faith, all of their sins were covered by Christ as well. Their blameless status that was given to them even beforehand, like the one who swipes the credit card to get access to something, even before the bill is paid, was paid by the blood of Christ on the cross. So that all sins from the beginning of the world to the end are dealt with in one of two ways either on the perpetrator of the sin or on the Son of God who bared the penalty for God's people. All sin is dealt with. There is no sin that happens that is not dealt with. This is what distinguishes Christianity from the other world religions. Every sin is paid for one way or the other. God is the best bill collector in the universe. And it's either going to be paid for by the perpetrator who commits the sin or the one who repents and places their faith in Jesus. And there's no other category of people. As we learn from the book of Hebrews... Even the Old Testament saints were saved by faith. So David, in conclusion, he asks this question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy city? The answer is, he whose blameless status is found in Christ and who lives by the Spirit within the community of God's people. Who will have the privilege to live with God? It's the one whose righteous status is found in Jesus by faith. And it's the one who manifests that faith by living the life of the Spirit in which the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Maybe put simply, and this is something we can apply to most of the Psalms as all of Scripture finds its yes in Jesus that's why we can sing the Psalms, because they find their yes in Jesus. They point us to Jesus. That Jesus is our means to God. That's the first part. Jesus is our means to God. And Jesus is also our model for how to live in this world. Jesus is our means and our model. He's our access to God, but he also shows us in the life of the Spirit what it means to be conformed to his image, what it means to live like him. 
So now that we have this broader understanding of Psalm 15, we can read the psalm understanding that Jesus is the only means for us to live with the Father. But we can also now read the psalm seeing it as a model for how we should aspire to live. We should aspire to live blameless lives. And albeit imperfectly, it should be our aim, our aim, our end goal. That's why Paul in his preaching ministry told the church of Colossae, Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we might present every member mature in Christ. So as we read Psalm 15, not only do we experience the grace of the one who secured our access to God, but we are also given a model for what it means to be mature in Christ and something that we can strive together in, to strive to live blamelessly in what we say and what we feel and how we act. And by faith in Jesus, friends, we have this promise at the end of the psalm. We shall never be moved and we shall live with God forever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray.